You're listening to Blackpool Church Podcast. Join us for our Sunday gatherings to make friends, explore faith and encounter God. Visit our website, blackpool.church. This is the Talk Archive. Brilliant. Uh, It's really exciting that we are going to be continuing this series, Holy Ground, and uh, Sam Lee is going to be speaking to us. Sam is married to Heather. They have two wonderful children and key members in this church. And Sam, I know, has been preparing something wonderful for us. So would you welcome Sam as he comes to speak to us? Hello. Yeah, thank you. Yes, good. I've I've, I've fallen at the first hurdle because I've written good morning on here, which is Obviously not what it is, so I'm not going to fall into that trap. Good afternoon, everybody. How are we? Yes, smashed it. Um, yes, it's, it's fabulous um, to have the opportunity to speak to you this afternoon and to carry on this series um, on sort of holiness that we've been looking at. Over the last few weeks, um, we've sort of tracked the, the sort of journey of Moses um, through the book of Exodus, um, looking at holy ground, uh, God's holy name, holy obedience, holy promise. And, uh, and last week, John spoke really powerfully on holy laws, and that sort of bit in the story of um, sort of Moses and God's people, um, where God brings the Israelites out of Egypt, and, and He gives them this sort of set of laws, this Ten Commandments. And uh, and John used this really beautiful analogy of of those being a little bit like wedding vows, this kind of sense in which that was a sort of set of promises and and values that sort of laid out the the terms of the relationship that was to follow. And so this morning, um, I get the exciting job of unpicking what that relationship gets to look like. Right? And we're going to talk about this holy relationship that God has made available for his people. And, um, and before we read, before we get open the Bible and have a look, um, there's a little bit of catching up to do, because we're going to skip ahead in the story a just tiny little bit. And, and you'd be forgiven for thinking if you've kind of had a sort of Sunday school awareness of, of the story of Moses and Mount Sinai and the, and the Old Testament, that Moses goes up the mountain, he gets the Ten Commandments, he comes down, and the people all just get on with their lives. Um, but actually, Moses is up and down that mountain like it's going out of fashion. He's up, down, up, down. And, um, and so he comes, he goes up and he gets the Ten Commandments. And then he comes down the mountain and the people of Israel say, yes, great. We love the sound of that. Let's do it. And, um, and then he takes Moses, he takes um, his brother Aaron back up the mountain with a couple of other guys, 70 actually other guys, give or take. And there's this like weird, brilliant bit of the story where they go up the mountain, so halfway up, and they see God and they sort of see his, like, his feet and where he's sitting and it's all kind of blue and, and magical, not, not magical, but it's blue and amazing. And... Um, and they have a meal with him and, and they don't die like they probably should if they've seen God in all his, his glory. And instead they share a meal together. And, um, and then the, the boys go down the mountain and Moses goes right up to the top and has this next encounter with God. And, uh, and that's really important sort of contextually for, for what's going to happen next. Because in the kind of intervening bit, after they've had this meal with God and Aaron has sort of seen God on this mountain, he's gone back down to look after the rest of the Israelites. And Moses is up the top. And God's instructions, his next instructions, sort of unpick some of the sort of, some more detail around the Ten Commandments, some detail about how he wants the people of Israel to live. Um, and he's essentially, at that point, making Aaron this sort of priest. 
And he says, right, this is what we're going to do. This is how worship of me is going to look. This is what Aaron is going to do. This is what he's going to wear. This is where he's going to be. This is how it's all going to work. And Aaron is sort of given in that moment this responsibility for looking after the the worship of God and leading God's people in worship. And then we get to Exodus chapter 31, right at the end of uh, of chapter 31. If you have a Bible, please do open it. If you have a phone and it's got one in there, then then go nuts. Um, Otherwise, I will read it to you. So it's uh, from verse 18 of chapter 31. And it says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave him the two tablets of the covenant law, the tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. And then chapter 32, when the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, tomorrow there will be a festival of the Lord. So the next day, the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them, and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it, and have said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger may burn against them and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favour of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he threatened. So that passage um, is a really interesting sort of view into the sort of relationship that Moses had with God. And I'm just going to ask you to bear with me for a second while I remember to time how long I've been speaking for, because otherwise I may get comfy. So now I've got a timer, I can keep track of it. Um, and we're just going to unpick a few things from that story and look at the relationship between Moses and God and what we can learn from that for our own relationships with God. Um, and to, to do that, to help me do that, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, you would normally expect a story to sort of build to a climax, have a conclusion and a kind of a, a maybe a punchline in an ideal world. Um, and this one doesn't. It meanders and then it stops. So bear with, but keep track because it is important. Um, a couple of weekends ago, I took my children to Coral Island. And, uh, and my children are seven and four. And, uh, and that's fun. And, and Coral Island, if you, if you haven't been... 
um, is a sort of uh, like a neon hellscape of arcade machines and loud noises and shrieking and and uh, it's it's really it's awful and um, but I thought in my head like they really wanted to go and I thought you know what like a couple of quid on parking a few pounds each on the machines that's an afternoon out for under a tenner and I'm dad of the year right we'll do it we'll smash it so I think it's like an online form you can you know nominate at your leisure um, but I so I, I took them there and um, and we, they went wild and free into this thing and I track them down, and, and we, we chose the machines. So you've got four pounds each, and that's it, and then home. Right, so they chose their kind of machines quite carefully. And one of the first ones they wanted to go on was this, like, firefighting one. I thought, that's wholesome, that's nice, I'll pay for that, that's okay. And, and, and they sort of sit in the chair, and they have a little um, sort of shooter thing that shoots a jet of water at an electric screen, which is wizardry I care not to investigate too much. Um, and, they fight, and they have to put the fires out with the water, and it's, it's amazing, really. It's, and they sat there together doing this game, and I put a pound in for each of them. And then um, Clara, who is the four-year-old one, got more excited, and she wanted to go into some other things. And, uh, and she learnt um, the, the dangers of the claw at her, you know, at her peril. She, she wanted to go on the claw, and it was ultimately fruitless. And she was very sad, but Toby had saved his money. And, uh, and Toby thought, oh, I liked the firefighting one. We'll go back for that. At this point, Clara is out of cash. And she's not getting more from me. That's not how I work. So we, we all went over to this thing. And Toby sat in it. And I was ready to put a pound in for him. And I thought to myself, well, Clara, she's four. Like, she's, she's just going to like the lights and colours. I can sit her there. And she can hold the thing. And she can point it at the, the flames. And she's not really going to know that she's not playing the game. She's going to sit there and be quite happy with it. And, um, and so I put the pound in for Toby. And the error in my judgment, was immediately clear. And Clara was, uh, was not happy. And for the next few minutes, I had to deal with Toby, who we, like, we'd invested in that. He was sitting there, his pound was in, he was playing for two or three minutes. Meanwhile, Clara is like screaming and trying to run away, and she wants the cuddly llama that she felt like she was owed from the claw machine, and the whole afternoon threatened to descend into chaos. Right? And it, it, it pretty much did. And, and the issue really is that what Clara had discovered was that the machine, that she, the thing she wanted to use, it didn't do for her what it had done before. It didn't do the thing that it did before. And so instead, it was sort of the game was playing out without any of her input. And so she got bored. It wasn't working. And so, so as I said, it sort of descended into madness. And in the passage that we've just read, the Israelites do essentially the same thing. They had been used to God leading them through the desert, leading them through the wilderness. In the day, a great big pillar of fire. In the night, a great big... No, the other way around because you can't see fire in the... No, he's smarter than me. In the day, a great big pillar of cloud. In the night, a great big pillar of fire. And, uh, and they'd been sort of travelling with some purpose through the wilderness. They knew what they were following and they knew what they were about. They were going to the promised land. And then, all of a sudden, that stopped. And it stopped for a long time. And by this point in the story, Moses has been up this mountain for like 40 days plus about a week, probably. And they're just there waiting and they're no longer being led they're just sort of sat and they had had this real sense of leading and direction and clarity and purpose and now it's kind of nothing and it's really easy to look at the Israelites in this passage and think like you bunch of fools like you look up the mountain and there's the clouds and the lightning and you can see like he's just there just look at him and it's really really easy to look at them with that judgment and think like oh, I would never be so stupid I would never be so stupid. How can you ignore God when he's visibly right there? And then I thought about that for 
more than about 30 seconds. And, and it becomes pretty clear that actually, if we're honest, do we not do that same thing? Do we not do that same thing all the time? We know God is there. We hear his voice. We maybe experience him really powerfully in worship or or we can point to specific times in our lives where undeniably God has acted. And we look back and we know, like, yes, God was there. When he did this thing or he did that thing. But sometimes we have these moments of waiting. These moments where maybe we get a bit bored or we, we don't feel that closeness anymore. And we start to lose faith. Or we start to take matters into our own hands and we, we put our trust in other things, in, in our money or in the people around us or in our own ability to just work our own way out of whatever trouble we're in. And that is what the Israelites did. But compare that to, to Moses' response in, in verse 11 and again in verse 13, and I'll read it again. The Israelites have lost patience with God and they want something new to lead them on further. But Moses remembers what God has done. He remembers God's work. And so he says, why should your anger burn against your people whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? He remembers that act and that sense of purpose that they had. In verse 13, sorry, he remembers what God had done for people before him and he remembers his place in that story. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky. And so because Moses knew what God had done, he had kind of confidence in what he was asking for. He had confidence in who God was. Um, I don't know if you've seen Batman Begins. It, like, I always think of it as quite a recent film, but it turns out it's not, and it makes me feel like an old man. But um, in Batman Begins, there's this moment where um, like Bruce Wayne, the, the hero, has been away. He's gone, I can't remember where, like the mountains to learn Kung Fu or something. And he, he comes back and he decides he's going to be Batman and speak like this for a long time. And, uh, and in order to be Batman, he also has to construct this sort of alter ego of Bruce Wayne. And so he sets about being incredibly kind of extravagant. He's enormously wealthy and he spends a load of money and he buys hotels and goes cavorting with women and all this stuff. And he bumps into this sort of childhood friend of his who looks at him and says, Bruce, what are you doing? This, this is not you. And, and she looks at him and she says, it's not who you are underneath. It's what you do that defines you. Like, I, I know your character by what you do. And, and I, I agree to an extent with that. There's nuance in there that I'm not sure I'm fully on board with, but the fundamental truth of that, that what we do reveals who we are, I think is bang on. And sometimes, like, unlike Moses, we don't get to go on the mountain and hear the audible voice of God. And we can think about this idea of relationship with God and think, well, how do I do that? Like, I can't, see him with my eyes. I can't always hear him with my ears. Like sometimes, cool, amazing. But, but for a few people, like it's, it's not. I think most of our experience of God that we hear is audible voice. So how do we know who he is? How do we have that relationship? And the first thing really that I want to I kind of make, the first point I want to make this morning, this evening, afternoon, ah, it was going to happen, is that we, we know God when we know what he's done. We know God when we know what he's done. And so if we want that holy relationship with him, we have to know him. We have to know what he's done for us and we have to know what our place is in that sort of overall story. The, the second thing that we can learn from this story is that we are invited to talk to God and that when we do, that prayer is, is relational. There's a, a, a verse, a, a chapter or two ahead in, in um, 
chapter 33, verse 11, where it says, God speaks to Moses face to face as if to a friend. And, uh, and I'm not convinced, I'm not sure there's a, there's a, sort of a better example of that in the Bible than this, uh, this one from the passage. Um, so let's have a little look again. And for context, let's remember the first part of Exodus where God tells Moses to go and lead the people out of Israel. Because if you remember in, in chapter 3, God speaks to Moses out of this burning bush and he says to him, go and speak to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, say to Pharaoh that the Lord says, let my people go. Like the Lord says, let my people go. And God claims the Israelites as his own people. And now, a little bit later on, the Israelites have, uh, have misbehaved somewhat. And God says to him, you need to get down that mountain, Moses, because your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, have become corrupt. And uh, there's all sorts of things kind of going on there, but... Like to me, that's a really sort of almost got a human exchange. Like there's one phrase that sort of articulates how I felt after my afternoon at Coral Island. It's the idea of getting home and just saying, like, these are your children now. Like you, you have them. And it almost seems like God here is doing the same thing. Like the, the Israelites have misbehaved and God is saying, Do you know what? They, they've rejected me. Like these are your children now. And Moses and God have this back and forth. And it's like, Maybe this tells you more about me than it is about Moses, but I read this as a slightly sort of passive-aggressive, like they're your people, no, they're your people. And so God says, your people have become corrupt. And Moses says, no, God, remember your people, whom you led out of Egypt. It wasn't me, it was you. And they have this, this sort of back and forth. And Moses sort of... In doing that, in, in challenging God and saying, no, it's you, he rejects that idea that, that he was the person who, who led them out. He approaches God with sort of humility. And he, as we've said, reminds God of what he's done. And, uh, and this, this little bit, this exchange, has been described by, uh, by one theologian as God processing his feelings with a human partner. And that, sort of, that can feel a little bit uncomfortable because feelings are, are fundamentally a very kind of human thing. And we like to think of God sometimes as a bit sort of above that or detached from that, maybe. But of course, of course God has feelings. Of course he does. This is the God who is love. This is the God who is slow to anger. Not doesn't get angry, but is slow to anger. This is God who like made us in his image. And so when we feel, we feel because God feels. And that doesn't mean that his character changes. His character, we looked at this the, the, the other week, his character stays the same. The fundamental basis of who he is doesn't change, but his feelings do. The way he feels changes. And I find that, like, I find it amazing and I find it encouraging because who, who would want God to be passive? Who would want God not to feel? Isn't it incredible that when we feel um, frustrated by injustice, so does God. When we feel compassion for the vulnerable, when our heart breaks for the people in Turkey and in Syria, like so does God's. And he gets there first. We feel because God feels. And those feelings that he has, like they can motivate what he then does. And so part of this is, is God processing those feelings with Moses. But then the other part of this, I think, is Moses equally honestly processing his feelings with God. Because I can imagine Moses hearing this is fairly frustrated because he's been on this journey with, with the Israelites and 
And they haven't always necessarily trusted him um, and he's taken them out into the desert. And a couple of times they've looked at the situation around them and said, Moses, have you just brought us out here to die? Is this, is this it? What have you done? And I can imagine if I'm Moses in that moment, hearing God say, oh, I'm just going to destroy him. I think, no, like I stood up for you. I led these people. They thought you would do this. They thought that we were all going to die. And I said, no. You can't. Like, how's that going to make me look? And I'm, again, I'm reading a lot into Moses there, but that's how I would feel. That's what I'd think. I'd be frustrated. And so this isn't just God processing his feelings with Moses, but it's Moses in response processing his with God and saying, you might feel like this, but actually I feel like this. And when we have that sort of Back and forth. When prayer is that honest back and forth with God, that's where the relationship is. In any relationship, you both sort of speak to each other. If it's one-sided, it's not a real relationship. And there's a, uh, a, well, he's a pastor or was, was a pastor in America, a guy called John Mark Comer, who says that prayer is brutally honest, naked and vulnerable. It's when your deepest desires and fears and hopes and dreams leak out of your mouth with no inhibition. It's when you talk to God with the edit button in the off position and you feel safe and heard and loved. And so if we are going to have this, like, this holy relationship with God, we need to, yes, we need to know God. We need to know what he's done. And we need to be able to talk to him honestly and openly and vulnerably. And then the, the final thing, in this, what we can learn from the passage, the final thing, for this morning, this afternoon, is that God responds. When we pray, God responds. And just think for a minute back to Clara on that little, on that little ride with her little um, fire shooter, water shooter thing. It wasn't responsive to her. She lost interest because the game was playing out and it sort of, she was half there, she was sitting there looking at it, but what she was doing wasn't making a difference. And she knew it. She really quickly identified that what she was doing wasn't influencing the outcome of the game. And so it wasn't interesting for her. And sometimes I wonder if we treat God sort of the same way. Like we come to church and we read the Bible and we pray, but ultimately, if we really sort of interrogate our, our beliefs, we maybe think that deep down, like God's just going to do what he's going to do. Like God's in control. God's going to do what he's going to do anyway. And so I can pray or I can not pray, but God knows what's good. And surely he'll do the thing that's good. So why bother? Why, why kind of do it if it's not really going to make a difference? But actually, the Bible has a very different thing to say. Again, in verse 14 of chapter 32, it says, God relented and did not bring on his people the disaster that he had threatened. And that word um, relented, if you want some, some Hebrew, is naham. I'm not going to make you say it, but you can practice later. Naham. And it means God changed his mind. Or, or sometimes some, some uh, translation of that view it as kind of God repented almost. Not that, he was, not that he was in sin, but that he regretted what he had been going to do and he changed his course of action. He was going to do one thing and then he had this interaction with Moses and Moses asked him not to. And so he didn't. And he changed his course of action from one thing to the other. And we find that kind of principle, like it sounds scandalous that, that we 
like just people, that we should be able to somehow influence the decisions and the actions of the God who made the universe. Like, who am I? Why, why should my prayers make a difference? But actually, we find that principle throughout the Bible. Andy spoke um, a couple of weeks ago on that ift. Do we all know what ift is now? That if, if this, then that. And God repeatedly says through the Bible, if my people, like if you do this thing, then I will do that thing. If you do this, then I will do that. My actions are dependent on what you do. I can do this, I can do that, but you need to act in the middle. And when we pray, it's the same thing. When we pray, God acts. When we pray, it changes things. When we pray, God moves. There's a, uh, a sort of philosopher, kind of a man, speaker, thinker. I don't know what his job is really, but he's called Dallas Willard and he's amazing and he writes books that I don't always understand. But he says this one thing here. He says, God's response to our prayers is not a charade. He does not pretend that he is answering our prayer when he's only doing what he was going to do anyway. Our requests really do make a difference in what God does or does not do. The idea that everything would happen exactly as it does, regardless of whether we pray or not, is a specter that haunts the minds of many who sincerely profess a belief in God. It makes prayer psychologically impossible, replacing it with dead ritual at best. What he's saying is that, um, as I said earlier, like if we don't believe that our prayers actually make a difference, then we might still think it's important to pray, but are we going to, what's behind that? Is there any weight behind that? Is there any actual passion behind that? Is there any conviction that when we pray, it's going to change anything? Because if there isn't, then it's just dry. It's bland. It's nothing. And so, Actually, when we have a relationship with God, if we approach it with that absolute sort of knowledge that when we pray, God acts, when we pray, God moves, when we pray, God changes things, how much more is that going to invigorate our prayer life? How much more is that going to invigorate our relationship with God? If a relationship is real, then we, we ask for things and we anticipate that our words have meaning. Again, like we, I was only in Coral Island because Clara wanted to go. I was, I was not going anyway. That was not on my agenda for that day. But she asked, and I love her. And to be fair to her, she kept asking. And so we went. And, and God is the same when we have that sort of two-way relationship. We can ask, and he will respond. And so I wonder this morning kind of how we feel about our own relationship with God. And, and maybe we're kind of at that point where, like, perhaps we're in that waiting bit like the Israelites were. Maybe we've a little bit lost sight of what God's already done in our lives. We've sort of been on a journey and God is maybe not doing the thing that he was doing before and we're sort of in that period of, of waiting. And we've started to wonder if he's there or if he's going to change anything, if he's going to act. And maybe we've started putting our trust in other things. Maybe, um, maybe we're not there. Maybe you've been praying, but, but there's some things that actually you don't feel comfortable bringing before God. Maybe there's some things that you don't want to say to him because maybe they're too bad or too grubby or you're, like, you're not comfortable. And so you're holding back in prayer and you don't want to be vulnerable with God. Or maybe you're at a different point again and maybe we've been praying sort of this sort of dry ritualistic prayers because actually deep down inside when we're honest, we've stopped believing that our prayer makes a difference. And wherever you are, if you're, if you're in any of those camps, I want to say to you this morning that there is an invitation 
There is an invitation for a relationship with God that goes beyond just dry ritual and sort of dead repetition of prayer into something active that can influence the world that we live in, that can make a difference for you and for the people around you, in our community, in our church, in your life. Like there is hope in that relationship with God.